On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with licensed professional counselor Tali Kadosh about attachment styles, trauma bonding, love, and abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A. With me today, I have Tally Kadosh. How are you? Great. I'm good. How are you? I am good. And today, we will be discussing attachment styles, trauma bonding, and narcissistic abuse. Uh, for everyone listening, Tally is a licensed mental health professional counselor specializing in addiction, depression, anxiety, and narcissistic abuse. She is formerly an expert witness for domestic violence survivors and has been in practice for 11 years. You have trained with Dr. Eric Gentry, who wrote the book Forward Facing Trauma. Your email is kadosh, K-A-D-O-C-H-T-A-L-Y at gmail.com. And thank you for being on the show with us today. And for those of you that want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, press the guest form button. You'll read all the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form, press the submit button. And today, myself and Tally Kadosh. Oh, I forgot to even say that I am Brandon Chadwick. I completely forgot to do that for the people that have never heard this before. I am Brandon Chadwick. I am the host of Narcissist Apocalypse. And today we're going to talk about attachment styles. And we're going to talk about four attachment styles. So, Tally, can you please uh, enlighten everyone about attachment styles? Yeah, thanks for having me. So the four adult attachment styles are secure, um, avoidant, anxious, and disorganized. And secure attachment would be um, a little bit more autonomous. Avoidant would be dismissing, um, not really able to tolerate emotions, pushing back. Anxious is a preoccupied attachment, and disorganized is unresolved. So what does all that mean? Um, adults with, with these attachment styles differ in a number of significant ways, um, such as how they perceive and deal with closeness and emotional intimacy, their ability to communicate their emotions and needs and listen to and understand the emotions and needs of their partner, um, the modes of responding to conflict or their expectations about their partner and the relationship, um, which is what we call the internal working model. So I guess there are the three of these, I guess, are primary underlying dimensions that characterize attachment styles and patterns. Can you discuss uh, what these dimensions are? Yeah. Um, the first dimension is closeness, meaning the extent to which people feel comfortable being emotionally close and intimate with others. The second dimension is 
uh, dependence or avoidance, which is really referring to the extent to which people feel comfortable depending on others and having partners uh, depending on them. The third is anxiety or the extent to which people worry their partners will abandon and reject them. I guess all of these dimensions lead into your attachment style that I guess is regards uh, avoidance, uh, closeness, and uh, anxiety. So can you give us a more of a thorough definition of all of these styles? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about a secure attachment, we are talking about um, an individual who is uh, has low avoidance, um, low anxiety. Uh, this individual would be comfortable with intimacy, not necessarily worried about rejection or abandonment. They're not preoccupied with the relationship. Um, it's relatively easy for that individual to get close with others. Um, they are comfortable on depending on them and having others um, depend on them. Um, these individuals have formed a really good bond with their primary caregiver, um, which is how attachment styles develop. So the way that they are attached from infancy really is um, how these attachment styles develop. The avoidance is more someone that you would think of as um, high in avoidance, uh, low in anxiety, they are uncomfortable with, with closeness, and uh, they primarily value their independence and their freedom. They're not necessarily worried about their partner's availability. Um, they are relatively uncomfortable being close to others and find it difficult to trust and depend on others. Uh, they kind of prefer that no one really depends on them either. So you'll see that these individuals push uh, intimacy away. Um, they really want to feel independent and self-sufficient. Um, and they are not comfortable being intimate. Uh, the anxious attachment style is low on avoidance. They're pretty high highly anxious, they sort of crave that closeness and intimacy, they're very insecure about the relationship, um, they want to really merge with others and be emotionally close, um, they often worry that their partner might leave them or abandon them um, or that their partner won't need them. And a lot of times this um, need for closeness really scares other people away. And then you have the anxious and avoidant, which is an individual that you could think of as being um, very high on avoidance, um, high in anxiety. This person would also be uncomfortable with intimacy and um, worry about their partner's commitment and love. Um, they are, again, uncomfortable getting close to others and find it difficult to trust or depend on others. 
um, because they are concerned that they are going to get hurt by a partner. Um, so more of a combination, but they do tend to be highly anxious. So um, I myself at one time was uh, an anxious attachment. I probably still have anxious because I think everyone tries to want to move towards a secure attachment. Um, and I think maybe I have an anxious, possibly avoid a combination of the anxious avoidant. What would be yours? You know, I myself also um, think I relatively have an anxious attachment style. Um, and it is uh, something that over time has come to my attention. And I am as well working towards a more secure attachment style. It, for me, when I discovered uh, attachment styles was when I saw my first therapist and it was one of the first things we we established was, uh, I guess, for her purposes uh, when we were doing work was to figure out my attachment style so we could kind of break down um, my relationships and how to help me, uh, you know, work out of codependency to have more um, loving and real love type uh, of relationships. So the first thing we tried to do was break down what attachment style I was uh, using and then go from there. That's why I think this is a really important episode because a lot of people uh, don't know or haven't uh, had awareness of what their attachment style is. And I think, you know, when you're aware of that, it's easier to work uh, towards healthier relationships um, once you know these little things about yourself and, you know, with these attachment styles, uh, you know, there's behavioral, cognitive and social aspects of each style and the way in which they differ regarding closeness, dependency, uh, avoidance and, and anxiety there, there's a combination of stuff going on. So is it, uh, it's common for adults to have a combination of traits, uh, rather than fit one style. So can you kind of break down, um, you know, these uh, further as far as uh, all of these types of traits? Yeah, so you're absolutely correct. This is a relatively unconscious process that sort of starts in infancy, really, and many people um, go years without necessarily um, having insight as to what their particular attachment style can be. Um it is common for adults to have a combination of traits rather than really fit into just one style. Um, I think that most individuals will find that they are um, leaning more to one style or, or another, but absolutely um, depending on external circumstances or even the partner that they are with, those traits can shift and um, feel like a different attachment style. Um, so the autonomous uh, individual who, as we said earlier, is relatively secure and um, comfortable in a warm, loving, and emotionally close relationship. Um, they're able to depend on a partner, allow a partner to depend on them. Um, they are available for a partner. Um, this person also accepts partner's need for, um, for their own space or separateness, and they don't feel rejected or threatened by that. Um, they can also be 
independent at the same time. So they um, are not needing that closeness all the time. Um, they're trusting uh, a little bit more in person, some tolerance differences, and forgiving. Um, their, the way that they communicate emotions, uh, needs, is pretty honestly and openly. They tend to be attuned to their partner's needs and um, respond appropriately. Um, they don't necessarily avoid that conflict. Um, these are individuals who manage their emotions well. They're not only upset about relationship issues, um, insight, resolution, and forgiveness about uh, their past relationships. Um, is pretty high, and, you know, they're sensitive and warm and caring, um, and you'll see this in, in the parenting style. They are pretty attuned to their child, uh, their child's needs and needs, and so these are the children that you would consider securely attached, and again, that attachment later translates into the adult relationship. Um, whereas the dismissive or avoidant individual is uh, emotionally distant and rejecting um, in intimate relationships. They keep partners sort of at arm's length. Um, they're always kind of holding off a little bit um, even when their partner wants more closeness, um, they uh, detach from uh, their needs, the partner's needs or feelings and, and behaviors. Um, if this equates sort of an intimacy that um, with loss of independence, they prefer autonomy altogetherness. So they are, are really, um, you know, independent individuals and, and actually prefer to be that way. Um, they are not able to depend on their partner or allow their partner to lean on them um, because their independence is such a priority. Um, the communication can be uh, rather intellectual um, as opposed to talking about emotions. Um, the avoidance tend to avoid conflict, um, but later on what you'll see is that they um, can become very explosive. Um, they appear uh, externally to be very cool and controlled, sometimes even stoic. They are compulsively self-sufficient and have a very na uh, narrow emotional range. And again, they really prefer to be alone. These also, these individuals tend to be pretty good in a crisis because they take charge. Um, they are not as emotional, um, but they can be thought of as uh, an unavailable parent, uh, one who might be disengaged and detached, and um, the children are also likely to have um, avoidant attachment. Uh, anxious, you know, attachment styles um, are very preoccupied, as we kind of mentioned earlier. They are relatively insecure in their intimate relationships. They're constantly worried about rejection or abandonment. 
they they tend to be really preoccupied with whatever relationship they're in. Um, they're sort of a hyperactivity that um, their attachment uh, causes and their behavior is reflective of that. Um, they're often thought of as needy or requiring ongoing reassurance. Uh, they want to merge with their partner and, and often that scares the partner away. Um, some other things that you would an anxious uh, person would be that they ruminate a lot about unresolved past issues, whether that's from their uh, family of origin or um, relationships. Uh, it, it tends to, their family of origin actually tends to really um, intrude into their present perceptions and their present relationships. So um, they're often afraid or hurt or angry and are sort of uh, consumed by this rejection. Um, they're very overly sensitive to uh, their partner's actions and moods in a disproportional manner. And their partner usually takes um, their behavior too personally. Uh, highly emotional. They're also very um, argumentative or combative, um, angry. They can be thought of as controlling because their boundaries are so poor and uh, their communication is not really collaborative. And they're unaware of their own responsibility in the relationship or in the relationship issues. So you'll see that they often um, blame others. And... Um, they're unpredictable or moody and uh, they sort of stir the pot um, because the way that they connect to others is through conflict. Um, these uh, parents would be thought of as um, inconsistently attuned with their children um, and therefore the children are likely to be anxiously attached. And we have, we have the last one, which would be the unresolved, which can be thought of as disorganized. Um, the unresolved would experience this unresolved mindset, uh, unresolved emotions. They're often frightened by memories of prior trauma, um, losses from the past, uh, haven't necessarily been resolved. They have a difficult time tolerating emotional closeness in a relationship, and they are as well argumentative. Um, they might rage, or they're really unable to regulate emotions. Um, so they end up with very abusive and dysfunctional uh, relationships um, and recreate sort of the, the, the past patterns. Um, they also can be thought of as um, having intrusive and traumatic memories um, and triggers, and they do dissociate at times to avoid the pain. Um, so they have they experience severe depression um, and PTSD, which PTSD is really just a stress response. 
um, they can be antisocial and lack empathy or remorse. Sometimes they can be aggressive or punitive, um, a little bit narcissistic in the sense that they don't really have regard for rules. Um, you'll see a lot of substance abuse and criminality in individuals. Um, and again, these parents are likely to uh, maltreat their own children. Um, they, the sort of in the children comes up with the past unresolved attachments um, and they're triggered into anger and fear by the parents and the child uh, interaction um, often develop disorganized um, and disruptive. Uh, children learn how to connect from parents and caregivers and what happens is that, you know, as an infant, your primary caregiver might be mom who's very detached and um, so you might develop an insecure attachment there and maybe later on or towards your formative years, um, you have a, a pretty strong connection with dad who is uh, more a secure attachment style. So uh, this history sort of plays a crucial role in determining how you end up relating um, an adult relationships. Um, so it definitely, you can see some overlap or some confusion. Um, with narcissists, um, that, what you would see with narcissists is um, in the grandiose narcissist, uh, they tend to align with the avoidant attachment style of relating in, in which the person uh, really learned to rely on themselves and adapted um, to feel as if they really don't need anything from others and, you know, they develop this sort of tendency to detach or disregard and not care about other needs. Um, most of the people who are really affected by uh, a narcissist are more the anxious attachment style. Um, those who, um, they have this anxiety response to the narcissist devaluing and um, dis discarding. They're likely to uh, experience that trigger of um, their attachment anxieties. And when those anxieties are triggered, it can take a really long time for them to calm down. And again, that's sort of the post-traumatic stress response um, in those who were abandoned or rejected and those wounds are being uh, triggered again. The anxious um, response is to having close relationships abruptly, um, it's not really taken lightly. Um, these are infants who experience a disconnect with a primary caregiver, um, like we discussed, and that disconnection really can be thought of as a threat to their life. It's very serious to them. Um, as infants, they depend entirely upon that uh, parental figure for their survival. 
and um, the infants and the young children who whose needs were not met on a consistent basis will either end up avoidant or anxious, um, depending on their primary caregiver and their response, and those attachment styles, again, are transferred to adult relationships. So can you discuss uh, how the trauma bond uh, fills the void of a certain type of attachment style? So let's talk about what trauma bonding is. Um, trauma bonding is it's a loyalty to a person who is rather destructive. Um, the idea of bonding, uh, I think, generally brings up uh, a connotation of something good and beneficial, but trauma bonds are, are unhealthy. Um, if you ever have a chance to look at um, Patrick Carnes uh, in his book, Betrayal Bonds, Betrayal Bonds, excuse me, there are a number of um, signs that a person is involved in an unhealthy bond with a partner. And um, some things to consider in, de- in determining whether or not you're in a trauma bond with someone is um, things like there's a constant pattern of non-performance, and yet you continue to believe promises um, to the contrary. Um, others might seem disturbed by something that has happened to you or was said to you, and you're not. Um, so everybody's had that friend who kind of expresses concern and you're like, you don't feel that. Um, you feel stuck a lot of times because the other person, uh, does continue doing these destructive things, but there's this belief that there's nothing that you can do about it. And again, maybe that you believe in those promises, um, oftentimes, uh, you try to change a person uh, into becoming less destructive by trying to get them to stop either an addiction or abuse. Um, there's repetitive uh, damaging fights with this person where nobody wins. Um, you're sort of unable to detach from someone even though you can't trust them. And a lot of times you might not even really like them. Um, when do try to leave this person, you find yourself missing them to the point of longing that's um, really pretty awful and um, you have this belief that it's going to destroy you. Um, trauma bonds, again, they usually occur in relationships involving the inconsistent reinforcement um, such as those with addicts and alcoholics or um, domestic violence situations. Um, dysfunctional marriages can also cause trauma bonds because there's always a time when things seem to be normal um, and other types of relationships involving the trauma bond um, are not consistent, not, um, you know, end up as not normal. So there's that confusion. Um, other types of trauma bonding that we know of include the cult-like religious organizations, uh, kidnapping, and and hostage situations. And and if you remember, um, 
Stockholm, Sweden was, uh, you know, where the, the term Stockholm syndrome came from because the the hostages um, were were really bonded to um, the people that took them hostage because they were so grateful that they didn't uh, hurt them or or kill them. And um, in the end, you know, uh, you'll see that those same hostages almost forgot that they were hostages and will often protect um, protect their uh, kidnappers. Um, the environment necessary to create a trauma bond um, usually involves intensity, complexity, inconsistency, and again, that promise. Um, victims stay because they're holding on to that elusive promise or that hope that something will change. There's always manipulation involved. Um, victims are prey to the manipulation because they are willing to tolerate anything for the payoff. Um, and that's that elusive promise and ever-present hope for fulfillment of some deeply personal need within the victim. So often um, those in traumatic relationships are, uh, they're looking right at it, but can't necessarily see it. Um, Usually after time away from the unhealthy attachment, a person can begin to see the destruction it caused. Um, and, and so in essence, these people really need to detox from trauma bonds uh, by breaking them and staying away from the relationships. Uh, avoidance are, they're not all narcissists. We can't contribute all avoidant uh, traits to the narcissist. But they do have the ability to detach emotionally from the relationship which triggers the anxious person's attachment anxiety. Um, Avoidants are not comfortable with too much closeness, so their relational dynamic is to push their significant other away to create a safe emotional distance. Um, However, these anxious um, partners who desire a lot of closeness with their partner experience being pushed away as rejection and abandonment, um, which triggers that deep-rooted anxiety. Um, Avoidants also tend to find fault with their partner and blame them for any issues in the relationship. And the funny thing is that anxious styles tend to find fault with themselves and blame themselves. So in essence, all fingers are pointing towards the anxious person because they're both pointing at the same thing, which explains why the anxious person feels responsible um, when the avoidant detaches from the relationship. When a relationship between an avoidant and anxious ends, uh, the avoidant can rather easily detach from the relationship um, and move on where maybe the anxious person is really plagued by a strong need to uh, reconnect with that person. And, and this, it's this strong need to reconnect. Um, it's often not logical. It's a deeply entrenched emotional pattern. The um, avoidance behavior can be abusive and unacceptable, but it doesn't really change the anxious person's strong pull to reconnect because 
again, there's something deeply ingrained in that anxious person that feels that their very survival depends on the connection with that person. And, you know, the irony in understanding these styles is that if an anxious style hooks up with a secure style, uh, these anxieties can be calmed oftentimes through the consistent feedback and um, the anxious person becoming uh, much more secure in the relationship. Even when the relationship ends, the anxious person is not as triggered in the way that they would be with an avoidant partner. Um, And that's because there is open or honest communication and feedback where the secure person shares uh, in the responsibility for the relationship issues. Um, The problem with mate selection is that avoidance represents the largest share of available single people on the dating scene um, because avoidance tend to be commitment phobic and can so easily sever their bonds when there's conflict in a relationship. Um, They avoid conflict and all relationships have conflict so there's little resolution um, and issues are swept on the rug and relationships break up sooner rather than later. Uh, whereas if you have an anxious type, the, the good news is that you can have a healthy, successful relationship. You, you just need to know uh, where to look. Secure types um, don't usually present as the charming or highly charismatic, uh, mysterious individual that might be the most seductive. Um, the anxious types may find themselves a little bored without the drama uh, created with an avoidance, but trading in the drama um, and intensity for security, for the stability in a relationship will actually give the anxious type the foundation to develop trust in their partner's ability to be there for them on a consistent basis. So in other, in other words, um, it can really assist the anxious type to thrive um, in the light of that security. So uh, a big problem people have is uh, leaving their abuser because the the toxic trauma bond is uh, so difficult. But also, once they do leave, a big problem is recovery because that trauma bond is so strong. So, uh, can you give us a, like uh, you know a handful of ways that um, people can help uh, recover from a toxic tra- trauma bond? Sure. So, just to kind of recap, um, trauma bonds. Uh, tend to occur in these toxic relationships, and um, but they're strengthened by uh, inconsistent positive reinforcement or a, uh, at least the hope of something better to come. And they tend to occur in extreme um, situations uh, such as abusive relationships or hostile situations, sometimes incestuous relationships. But also, um, in an ongoing attached relationship in where there is a great deal of pain interspersed with times of calm. 
Um, that's kind of the key there. And um, I liken it to a heroin addiction. The relationship promises, you know, um, these feelings of utopia and then uh, sucks away at your soul. Um, well, and, and so the good news to all of this is that there is hope uh, on how to break free from these, this type of stronghold um, and things to combat a trauma bond would be um, make a commitment to live in reality. So if you find yourself wanting to fantasize about, about what could be or what you hope will be, um, reminding yourself that you have made a commitment to live in what's actually true. Um, even though you don't choose to leave the relationship immediately, in the meantime, you can at least remind yourself that um, you will stop fantasizing about what's not happening. Um, another sort of tip would be living in real time, which basically means to stop holding on to what could or will happen tomorrow um, and, and start uh, being mindful, noticing what's happening in the moment. Um, notice how trapped that you feel or um, how unloved you feel and how uh, you've even compromised your values or self-respect and self-worth for this relationship. Um, it really requires paying attention to your emotions um, and stop uh, the hoping and waiting um, so that you can start noticing in real time what is actually happen happening and what's affecting you. And um, another coping skill is uh, to live one decision at a time and one day at a time, which is a huge thing in the addiction world and the recovery world, um, just, you know, one day at a time because sometimes people scare themselves with uh, all or nothing thinking. So um, it's best not to get into extremes such like uh, I'll never talk to the, this person again. Um, this is like kind of trying to lose weight by telling uh, yourself that you can never eat chocolate cake again. Um, so, while it's true that the relationship is unhealthy, um, you don't need to make every encounter um, a do-or-die situation because uh, that just often sort of scares people. Um, uh, making decisions that only support your self-care is another uh, way to overcome this, and uh, that is... Um, working on not making decisions that hurt you. And this goes for um, emotional relapses as well. If you find yourself feeling weak, um, you know, try not to berate yourself, uh, but rather talk to yourself in a compassionate, understanding, or reflective ways. Um, remind yourself that you are a work in uh, progress and life is a journey and, and things, you know, it's progress, not perfection. Um, don't make the uncaring decision to mentally beat yourself up. 
Um, in, in every encounter, you have the object of your obsession stop and think about each choice you make. Make choices that are in your best interest. Um, and this is a general uh, good rule in the recovering world. If um, you really find yourself kind of berating yourself, um, that's a good indication to talk to yourself in that compassionate, uh, understanding way uh, so that you are able to remember that it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, it's important to start feeling your emotions. Uh, whenever you're away from the toxic person in your life, and feel uh, tempted to reach out to them for reassurance, that's um, a, a signal that you should stop. And um, the alternative is, you know, consider writing your feelings down instead. Um, write whatever comes to you. For example, I feel this way and I miss uh, so-and-so. I wish I could be with this person right now but I'm not going to sit and write my feelings, but I am going to sit and write my feelings down instead. Uh, I am going to teach myself how to feel my way through the obsession rather um, than turning to it. And um, this helps to build your inner strength and um, learn to be with your emotions. And again, all, you know, these are all things that are very good coping skills in any kind of addiction um, because addiction sort of involves that, that aspect of not wanting to deal with your emotions. Um, so it's learning that you don't need to run from them or hide from them, um, avoid them or make them go away. You can fully feel them and validate them. Um, and, and that, in turn, will um, allow them to begin to subside. Uh, sort of the only way out is through. Um, learning to grieve is also major in uh, overcoming this. Um, letting go of a toxic relationship and breaking a traumatic bond may be one of the hardest things that, um, that you ever have to do. Uh, it's can't do it without honoring the reality that you're losing something that's pretty valuable to you and, and in some ways might have even served uh, a purpose for you. So um, understand the, the quote-unquote hook, uh, which is, you know, identifying exactly what you're losing. Um, whether it's a fantasy, a dream, uh, an illusion, perhaps your partner has convinced you into believing they were going to fulfill some deep unmet need. And once you can identify what this need is or, or what this hook is, you can get down to, to grieving. And grieving just means, um, in this sense, uh, holding your hands open and letting it go. Um, you say goodbye to the notion that you may, um, that it might never be met. Uh, when it, when it comes to this one, when we've had someone, um, uh, an adult uh, children of narcissist specialist on the show, and a question that we once had was, 
um, for someone who had a narcissistic uh, mother. They had been no contact forever, but when that mother died, the person um, was very upset and very distraught, and she was very, very confused. And, you know, the answer for them was you weren't grieving that your mother died. You were grieving that you were never going to uh, get that illusion or dream or fantasy in your head uh, that your mother was going to eventually wake up one day and call you and love you like she never was able capable of. But it was still in them, even though they had gone past it. It was still in there, and that's what they were finally grieving over because they were never going to get it. And that, I guess, was probably for them the last part of the process and probably a very difficult process because it was so deep inside them. They couldn't even see it yet. Yes, absolutely. Um, And that's really the key. Um, That's really it. Uh, It's grieving me. the idea that it will not ever be met or ever be met by this relationship. And, and sometimes you see um, people who, you know, the parent um, may not have actually passed away, but they severed ties, um, you know, and, and, and so grieving that um, that need is never going to be met or, or, or never going to be met by that relationship. Um, which is, you know, it's a very uh, powerful feeling. Mm-hmm. Some, some other, um, you know, some other, there's really a, a lot of different things, you know, to work on, but um, I suggest also, you know, writing a list of bottom line behaviors for yourself um, because oftentimes these types of addictions really cause you to... Um, maybe tread outside your boundaries, um, you know, some good things to, to sort of uh, focus on for yourself is, you know, I'm not going to sleep with someone who calls me names or I want to argue with someone who's been drinking or I'll take care of my own finances. Um, I won't have a conversation with anyone when I'm feeling desperate or obsessive or defensive. Um, But it's something that you, you know, each person has to sort of determine what their area of concern is um, and then sort of write those bottom line behaviors for, um, for yourself. And, you know, I think a huge, um, a huge tip for, for healing in general is to start building your life. So little by little, um, you know, starting to dream about uh, your future or what your future can hold or, um, you know, your children if you have children. In other words, um, a lot of us kind of walk around, you know, as zombies or hoping that others won't fulfill our needs. But when you start to um, make dreams for yourself or dreams that do not involve um, this traumatic partner um, is, you know, when you can start to sort of build your own life. Um, So, you know, maybe you want to go to school or start a hobby or or join a club. Um, It's, you know, really making life-affirming choices 
for yourself that take you away from the the toxic interactions that have been destroying your peace of mind and uh, place it in a more um, hopeful context and one where you are able to achieve it um, for yourself. Um, and, and that goes sort of hand in hand with uh, obviously building healthy connections and um, which I think is really the the only way to really free yourself from these unhealthy connections is when you start investing in healthy ones. So I know like in, in substance abuse, you know, we say like you have to change uh, people, places, and things um, because if you're surrounding yourself around, um, you know, toxic people, um, it, it's going to be very hard to eliminate those habits. Um, so developing, in this sense, developing other close, connected, and bonded relationships that are not um, centered on drama or, or toxicity, um, you know, making these your to-go people uh, it, because it's so difficult to heal without support. Um, so notice the people in your life who have shown you uh, loving concern and care and, um, you know, choose to hang around them as often as you can. And, and many times, you know, people do need to reach out for professional help um, to learn how to identify these things and, um, and then put them into action and apply them. So now that we've gone through all of that, we have... And for everyone out there, there's a lot of information. So if you need to listen to this episode more than once, listen to it twice, three times. Tally is giving you a fantastic uh, information on how to improve your life. And our first audience question, we're about to do audience questions, is a great question. And it's something I need to learn and everyone uh, needs to learn, which is how do you go from avoidant or anxious attachment to having a secure attachment style? Yeah, so, you know, that's like the million-dollar question, right? Like <laughs> yes. with everything else. Uh, <laughs> um, acknowledging, you know, just like any other problem, acknowledging um, the problem is 50% of the solution. So in this case, um, acknowledging your attachment style um, and accepting your role in it is, is going to be, uh, you know, imperative to begin the process of healing, um, learning how to self-regulate and, and heal, um, understanding the behaviors that go along with your attachment style so that you can then uh, learn or develop new patterns. Um, another important piece to this is uh, because this does often stem from um past or, or trauma, uh, learning to, tr- to think of your um, story in a different way um, is essential to really building uh, your self-concept. Um, learning to think of others in a different way. We have, you see a lot of people with those core beliefs that, um, you know, others are, can't be trusted or they're hurtful. And so really learning to think of others in a different context um, is essential. 
And, you know, learning to change old behaviors is, uh, and learn to more secure new behaviors um, is what's going to ultimately help develop uh, more secure patterns of attachment. And our last question, what is the difference between trauma bonding and love? So as we said earlier, um, trauma bonding uh, does attempt to meet unfulfilled needs such as rejection and betrayal. Um, it's often an attempt to re-empower the individual who has been traumatized um, and boundaries are often non-existent or, um, you know, very limited. Um, so need meeting is very one-sided. And um, actual love is uh, built on, you know, shared experiences. So acknowledgement of um, mutual uh, values and respect for individual differences, while um, couples in love uh, do seek to meet each other's needs, um, this process is based on healthy boundaries and um, understanding each other's needs and uh, the realization that meeting personal needs should not be the sole responsibility of uh, one partner. So, you know, love is almost like a negotiation in many ways um, where, you know, each person or each side has to kind of state their their needs and their bottom lines and then you sort of... Um, have to negotiate your um, must-haves or, you know, can't do, and, and um, but there's more harmony uh, in that process as opposed to trauma bonding where it is very one-sided. Well, Tally Kadosh, I want to thank you for being on our show once again. Uh, just for Thank everyone, you. you're welcome. And just for everyone out there, we will have Tally's information uh, in the description of the show. She can be reached at kadosh, uh, tally at gmail.com. That is K-A-D-O-C-H-T-A-L-Y at gmail.com. Uh, tally is a fantastic uh, professional. And if you need uh, a professional or are looking for a professional to help you with narcissistic abuse, your attachment styles, uh, Tally is available and uh, she is a great counselor. So thank you for being a part of our show uh, once again. And is there any last uh, little thing you want everyone to know before we leave? Just that help is available and it might sound uh, overwhelming or impossible, but um, it, it is definitely uh, doable and it's, um, a process that many individuals go through and have to work through in their lives. So it is possible um, just to let people know. Well, thank you. And once again, before we leave, if you want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, press the guest form button, fill out our guest form. After you read our instructions, please do read all of our instructions or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. 
And for those of you who need support, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com and click on our support group button. Inside there, you'll see that we have our very own safe social network. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have episodes that are ad-free. We have... Uh, Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. We also have forum boards for people to chat on there as well. So please do go to our safe social network. Click on the support group button at the top of the page at NarcissistApocalypse.com and we will see you there. And if you need even more support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. They are friends of ours. And at DomesticShelters.org, you can have articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. They can connect you with local resources like shelters as well. They can help you heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org. It is a free resource, so access it today. And once again, I want to thank Tali Kadosh for being here with us today. And from Tally and myself, we hope you have a good night.